This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. David Campbell here, your host, and I am joined, as I am every week, by Mr. Terry Pluto, who is just back from the Pacific Northwest. Terry, I hope you had a great time out there. Uh, the game was one thing, but you also got to spend a little time with some friends. I know that was good. Well, first of all, I needed that game to end at the two-minute warning. <laughs> I even had part of this nice column written about, um, you know, they're winning with P.J. Walker. I'm not sure how, but Stefanski had a really good game plan. Uh, they held, uh, they got down, was a 17 to three and came back all those things. And there was, I was sitting next to a guy named Steve Kelly. He's retired now, but for years, he kind of like had my job up at, I think at the Seattle times. And we were just laughing at the end of laughing go, you know, your team will always just screw up a good story when you have it. And because I was telling this is going to be great, you know, look at all this. And they're out there with third string running backs and everything else. And um, unfortunately, it didn't fall there. But no, I had a nice time out there. It's, it's phenomenal when you look out the back of the stadium where they have um, uh, they have like a little dining room there with the glass enclosed. And you see the harbor and the ferries. And so the scenery was great. The game was great till the last two minutes. But it's always great to be home. Yeah. This one place I've never been to Seattle. I'd love to get out there sometime. And it seems like there's tons of great stuff. And I was watching the game on TV, and it was actually sunny, <laughs> which I was not expecting. Yeah, it was. So. And, and it was sunny the whole three days there. <laughs> the thing that people who haven't been to Seattle or, like me, had not been out there for maybe 10 or 12 years, it has grown so much. And the traffic is, you know, the old four or five lanes on each side, really, it jams up sort of for no reason at any time it makes me grateful to i've always been grateful to live in where i grew up in northeast ohio but we are in a major market uh without a lot of the major market headaches no you know, doubt we're the, the the smallest market with the three a team in uh, mlb nba and nfl uh, and so it's really nice I didn't realize kind of how much sort of on edge I was driving because even though I didn't was not in quote unquote rush hour, it was still all kinds of problems till I got home. Say, this is so nice driving on seventy seven. So, <laughs> all right, we got a lot to get all into, right, Terry. So, so where do you it's want to November start? and I, I, all right, David, who's playing quarterback? Who's playing quarterback? That's what everybody <laughs> wants to know. Who's going to play? 
Yeah, who knows, right? All right, so we're going to talk about the Browns. We're going to get into uh, the Cavs, who lost to the Knicks last night in the playoff rematch. Uh, there's some baseball stuff that I want to get into about the Guardians manager, and you've got a column going up tomorrow morning about Frank Howard, uh, which is just uh, it's a treat to read. I know you called Rocky about that. So we got and we have a couple more letters from fans about why they're Cleveland sports fans. So we got a good good podcast today, and it's November. Did you see this, Terry? The other day was one of the rare, they call it a sports equinox, where every sport is playing on the same day. And it's only happened like 20 or 30 times, but I think we had one last week. But it's a, it's a crazy time of year, so let's get into it. So uh, the Browns quarterback situation, we're taping this on Wednesday around 5 o'clock. It seems like Deshaun Watson is throwing the ball with some zip today in practice. So we don't know what that means, right? But where do you stand with the Browns quarterback situation and what I, I guess we can make it two parts for what they did or didn't do at the trade deadline. Okay. If they, you know, they should have inside information. Let's start with that. Cause he's their guy there. And I saw the videos of him thrown and it looked pretty good. And those who are out there. Mary Kay and so on thought that his arm looked stronger than it's been. So maybe that was why they decided not to just go all that far for Jacoby Brissett, who supposedly they wanted a third-round pick for him, Washington. Um, figuring, okay, we're gonna, we think Deshaun's coming back, we're going to play. Now, here's a key thing to watch if he does play Sunday or whenever he plays. See, it's one thing to just one, two, three steps, you know, three-step drop throw. Throw, throw, in other words, you're – where you're not moving around, you're just your arm slot, it's easy to keep your whole body, everything lined up correctly. And as you saw when he played against Indianapolis, uh, and especially his style of scrambling all over, the left shoulder goes flying out, the right arm goes this other direction, that puts a lot of strain on the rotator cuff. And that's where we'll have to see how that goes if he does play. So they seem to think he's almost maybe sort of could be ready. Uh, you make a great point about the throwing on the move, Terry. I, th- I think that'll be a true yep. indicator because we, we did see again, some of those balls dropping short when he was on the move. Uh, I th- they, they know, like they look at everything, right? And I think the fact that they're playing Arizona this week might have figured into the trade deadline inactivity at quarterback because I, I think they think they can win this game Sunday regardless of who's in there. And then they're thinking Watson will definitely back for the Ravens game. I'm just, that's all conjecture. I have nothing to base that on. But everybody's like, why didn't they do something? Why didn't they do something? Well, they they kind of, like you said, they have inside information that we don't know. And I do think that played into it. I really do. I mean, I still would have liked to, I might have given a third for Brissett. I really might have. Even though he uh, was in the last year's you, contract, huh? Yeah, I just because... <sighs> I'm just worried about a re-injury with Deshaun, and Lord knows I never thought I'd make a case for a guy who's played three games and has seven turnovers and one TD pass that he had to start, but that is P.J. Walker, and I also know that's totally unsustainable that he's two and one, uh, so... I just worry that Deshaun's not going to go the distance. And I still think despite all the problems they've had, you know, losing, losing Nick Chubb or whatever, you're four and three. And with reasonable quarterback play, you could win 10 games. But I don't think you could do that without, if Watson goes out with the current group they have. So that's why I probably would have done that with Jacoby um, and try to see. I know he's in the last year of a contract, but, you know, you might have been able to sign him anyway. 
and extend him. Hmm. Interesting. All right, Terry. So we don't know who's going to start on Sunday, but we pretty much know it's either going to be Deshaun Watson or if he can't go, PJ Walker is going to start there. Kevin Stefanski has said that this week. Is that, that's the right move, right? You you don't think Dorian Thompson Robinson should get a shot. I mean, however he did it, whether he's an innocent bystander or directly involved in them winning, they're two and one, and it could easily have been three and zero with him. It's just like his record. I think his career record is something like, uh, uh, I think it's six and four, but really should be seven and four because he didn't get the win for the Indianapolis game. You know, that's a bad rule that the NFL has. The score they should have like a, a stat guy award the win to whatever quarterback actually plays the whole game. Uh, anyway. Uh, I just he there's something about him. I see the players relating to him. I think they play hard with him on the field. They do. Uh, but I got to be honest, Terry. I, I heard a quote from PJ Walker after the game the other day that if yeah. I'm a Browns fan, like that, it really worries me. And I, I, I mm-hmm. pulled it out because I wanted to get your thoughts on it. It's right after the game. They just lose on an interception. He says yeah. they played 44 palms, which I think that's the defense they're in. They, they blitzed the nickel. The inside, we were throwing double slants to the field, was just trying to put the ball on Coop, let him fall for the first down, got tipped in the air. That's just out of control for that one. Out of our control. That's uh, just out of our control no. for that one. And I heard that quote. And I, I'm a Browns fan. I'm like, yeah. what quarterback says that throwing a ball no. and having it deflect off a guy's head is out of his control? Like they, That's directly – in your control, and it kind of feeds into what Kevin Stefanski has been so upset about the last few days is like the, the, the turnovers. I mean, they, the Browns lead the league with 17 turnovers, and your quarterback mm-hmm. is saying, oh, you know, that was out of control, nothing we could do. I thought that was a really weird yeah. thing for him to say. What's your take on it? It, 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 it was, and, and I also just think he was frustrated. Uh, and then on top of it, I'm sure he knew that everybody was saying they should have run the ball even right after the game because that was a line of questioning. So, it's like, well, you got, okay, so the quarterback says, don't blame me. And while Kevin won't say it, he's probably thinking, don't blame me. We had like three guys open on that play. Uh, but I just really believe you have to know your um, your players and your personnel. You have a turnover-prone quarterback, and you just don't ask him to put that ball in the air in that situation. That's my thing. And if you'd run it and not get it, uh, you let Corey just boot it all downfield and make him go 80 yards. Yeah, so I, I think the third and three decision has been kind of analyzed, and I know you wrote right after the game that mm-hmm. – that, so let's let's just do this real quick. We don't want to spend the whole podcast on it, but yeah. I, I do want to say I thought Kevin Stefanski, his game calling – against Seattle was masterful. Like I, I thought he yep, did a I beautiful agree. job. That screen pass that they threw to David Njoku for that touchdown, that was like a ballet, man. It was, it was, there was a fake screen to the right and a fake screen to the left. And it just like parted the red seas. I mean, the orchestration mm-hmm. to make that happen in the practice and the, just the play design. And then to send Njoku, you know, on a tight end thing right down the middle of that <laughs> gaping hole. Uh, that is hard to do, and I just really appreciated that. That was just one example of what I thought he did Sunday, which was call a brilliant game. But then we get to third and three right before the two-minute warning, and and you wrote about this Sunday, mm-hmm. right? And and your thing was, 
run the ball, right? And, you know, the ob- the obvious thing, too, because I mentioned sitting with Steve Kelly, the former columnist, who's doing some stuff for a weekly up there in Seattle. And I said, all they got to do is run the ball. And there was a pause. And I said, he's going to throw it, Steve. I mean, I, you could just feel it. And I don't mean I told you, so probably half the Browns fans are fearing that he's going to throw it. And that's what happened. So, yeah, I wrote it notes going into that weekend saying that uh, I think Stefanski, you know, something like something like you have some uh, uh, empathy for Stefanski. And I do ever since the Watson thing showed up, this has been very tough for any coach to handle this, you know, because he's always out there answering questions that frankly, maybe ownership should be answering about the suspension, all that stuff last year, then the rust questions. And then this year, you know, things are supposed to start and go real smooth, and it only lasts three games, and then he's hurt. Then Watson says he's going to play, and then, you know, then their, their messaging was terrible uh, all the way around and around. And I'm just thinking he has to have sat there and go, here we are almost at the midpoint of the second year of Deshaun Watson, and really, what do I have? One or two good games out of him to show for it. Yeah. And and what what do I know is coming? I mean, you never. This is this is like you don't have to give him truth serum because you never get that out of him. And then um, he's out there with PJ Walker, who, by the way, I think for his NFL career, throwing six touchdown passes compared to sixteen interceptions and has a winning record. Everything about him defies any analytics and any logic at all. <laughs> well, it's funny, Terry. I was thinking of two basketball coaches when that whole thing went down. And, and you, you mentioned this quote a lot on our podcast here, but the, yeah. the old, it, it was Lenny Wilkins who said, what did he it, Was it he who said, just because you have an open three doesn't mean you need to shoot it. Was that him? Yeah, you don't have to right. take it. So That was him. So, and our, our, his general thing too is even just because the guy's open doesn't mean you have to throw it to him. Meaning a lot of times, Say a little guy would go under the basket like Mark Price, but yeah, he's open there. But what's he going to do? Post up a six foot eight guy? That doesn't make any sense. And so, so what I'm getting at yeah, yeah, with the Lenny thing yeah. is like the clock was going to stop at the two minute warning, which yeah. and you wrote about this when you mentioned analytics in your column. Like that opens up the whole playbook because no matter what happens, the yeah. clock is going to stop. It's not like you're you're not running the clock. So oh, we can run or pass on this one. So he chose. Mm-hmm it's just this is it's so hard to be a coach like but if you're gonna put the balance of the game on somebody are you gonna put it in the hands of like Kareem Hunt and your offensive line that basically won you know had the game-winning play the week before on the goal line and say listen go get the three yards if you can't get it we're gonna punt or or do you put it in the hands of PJ Walker who you just read his interception numbers and and that made me think of the other basketball coach Terry. And this, I know this is a little off, but uh, and when I used to work at a paper outside Chicago in Northwest Indiana, and I went to a banquet one time, and Bob Knight was speaking, and he had a little mm-hmm. a little session before the the dinner, and he was telling this story. And I apologize to Marty Simmons if this wasn't him, but he told this story about Marty Simmons and Uwe Blob. Do you remember these guys from from Uwe Blob played in the mm-hmm. NBA? He said they were running practice one time. Marty Simmons came down. Uwe Blop, he was a big seven-foot German player, not not great coordination. Marty Simmons fires the ball to him. It goes off Uwe Blop's hands out of bounds. 
And Bob Knight says, Uve, you got to catch that. They come down the second time, same kind of play. He throws it again off Uve's hands. Bob Knight says, Uve, you got to catch that. They come down later in practice. Marty Simmons throws the same pass. The same thing happens. And Bob Knight says, Marty, what are you doing? You know he can't catch that pass. Exactly. (laughs) No, that's exactly right. And that is – it just made this connection in my head. Like Kevin Stefanski knows that he's dealing with a guy who throws a lot of interceptions. He almost threw one in the San Francisco game when when Kevin Stefanski told him, do not to run. Yeah, do not throw yeah, this ball. <laughs> so like yeah. I kept thinking of like Marty Simmons and Kevin Stefanski. Like you know that he's prone to interceptions. So don't let the game rest in his hands. I mean, maybe he told him if it's not open, throw it away or throw it in the ground. I don't know, but like you shouldn't and, leave that possibility open, right? And another thing is, I remember right around that point in the game, maybe about a minute before then, um, I was thinking, boy, um, PJ's been getting hit a lot. Not sacked. So I looked at the stats. At that point, he had taken 10 quarterback Ooh. hits. 10. That should, and you should be aware of that on the sidelines, too. So my quarterback's been getting hit a lot even though I think he's only sacked a couple times, but he'd been hit 10 times and there. So anyway, I think we beat that to death. So I am curious to see if they are going to go to Watson this week or not. Yeah, that's the big question. And if so, how does he play, right? Maybe, I mean, you got two theories. One is um, another week of rest. Does that help his arm? But you also just need to get in there and play again because it's been what he's, he's had like, 12 snaps in five weeks now or whatever it was in an Indianapolis game. Then you get out there and you feel like that game's really fast for you. So, hmm. All right, Terry, do we want to talk about the defense real quick? I, I think that yes, was a little bit thoughts. overlooked there. They've given up some long drives at, at clutch times. I mean, it, some people after the game are saying, don't blame the offense for that one. Uh, the defense mm-hmm. would have given up a 75-yard drive instead of a 57-yard drive, whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, you were there. What did you see? And in, in, I know it, there's a lot of analytics we can get into here, but what, do you, what did you see from the defense there? And what, or do we know? Do we have an answer to it? <laughs> I, I don't have a real good answer. I just know in the last two weeks, because I wrote a comment on this, they've given up something like 818 yards. And they've given up, um, I believe it was uh, 62 points. I mean, it's real close, if not exactly that. But this number, I know for sure, they've given up five touchdown drives of at least 75 yards. So it isn't like earlier in the year where they would give up a touchdown when somebody fumbled on the 14-yard line or something. So, in fact, this is uh, the old cried before the fall. Right around, they came out with the greatest defense in the world. And uh-oh, look what happened. Um, so anybody who's sort of an old-timer go, don't do that. Yeah, and, and and Schwartz called it. He said they don't give any awards for five weeks or something, right? After they, he was, he right, was about right about that. that yeah. So I would, I'd be wondering what they are when they do look at that. I mean, they were double and triple teaming Garrett. He, uh, Smith does get rid of the ball quickly, but you can't force him into mistakes uh, with uh, – you know, pressure, even if you're not sacking him. I think finally Garrett got him towards the end. Uh, and he did have two interceptions in that game. So they better – that's the – I guess the other th- caveat is, look, if the defense is suddenly falling apart, then um, 
it doesn't matter this year. You're in big trouble. Yeah, I, I, I have to find the numbers on this, and I don't have it, Terry, but I really – it's like, what are you best at? They're, they're best at playing man-to-man defense and rushing the passer, right, in, in, in crunch time especially. Yeah. And I would like to see them just do that. A lot of teams go into zones and shells and two and two and three high to try and stop the big play, and you're just giving up chunks of yardage and just do what you do best. Like I think, I think the offense and the defense, if they would have just relied on what they do best the other day, it might have been a different story. Like I don't know. Um, yeah. But. Well, there's always a temptation, almost in any business. Um, for example, I mean, one of the biggest things is uh, to illustrate that is. It was many, many years ago now when Coca-Cola came out, remember, with the new Coke. Oh, yeah. Well, who said there was anything wrong with the old Coke when it had the majority share of the market? And then actually all that did was create a debate of old Coke versus new Coke. And is there something wrong with the old Coke? And that's why they're doing the new Coke. And it's one of those things they study in business school. The same thing here, as you mentioned. Generally, it's pressure. It's man-to-man. Stick with it. Now, they got gashed once or twice in this game uh, with those inside runs for big yardage. But it was really apparent in the Colts game. And remember, they faced Geno Ford and Gardner Minshew. So the 62 points or whatever it is they gave up, it's not like they gave it up to you know to Mahomes and Josh Allen back-to-back. Oof. All right. Um, anyway, the Browns are back home on right. Sunday. Anything else on the Browns you want to get into, Terry, before we take a break? They still kick field goals. They do. They will be back home on Sunday against the Joshua Dobbs-less Arizona Cardinals. Um, Jonathan Gannon will be coming home to coach the Cardinals, a Cleveland native and St. Ignatius graduate, so I'm sure he'll have a lot of family and friends at the game. But that's a 1 o'clock kickoff down at Cleveland Brown Stadium. Uh, Let's take a break, Terry. When we come back, I want to ask you, are you worried at all about the Cavs from what you've seen so far, given their injuries and given how they played against the Knicks last night? So we'll be right back on Terry's Talking. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Let's get into the Cavs a little bit, Terry. There was a lot of talk about this first rematch game against the Knicks after the playoffs last year. The Cavs have talked about it. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of guys are hurt. They're missing uh, Darius Garland and Allen and Levert, and they went down 109-91 to at home last night in the first game of back-to-back. Game two is tonight at Madison Square Garden. I, I want to ask you, Terry, are you worried about what you've seen so far? Is it so early and have the injuries been so many that it's just it's too early to get to be worried at all? Where are you at? You feel, I mean, I'm watching that game the other last night and I've seen the Cavs summer league team out there. But at the end, 
it really was just, it's almost irrelevant at this point. And I don't mean that it, you just, when you say you don't have Garland and you don't have Allen and you don't have Levert, um, and Donovan Mitchell, I guess, is not totally right either. I am wondering why are so many guys hurt early in the season? And it's, it seems to be a lot of hamstrings. We actually got an email about this that I didn't pull, but there was a fan wondering, like, what's going on? Are, are they pushing them too hard at the start of the season where all these hamstrings are happening? That's a medical question that I don't know we can get into, but it is weird. Yeah, it's just weird. And I didn't seem like they played them an extreme amount in the preseason or anything, so I don't know. Um, a couple of things. Right now, the Cavs are shooting slightly under 40 three-pointers a game. And that's seventh in the NBA. To me, that's too many. Now, part of the reason may be because they don't have their full complement of guys. And the guys that are healthy, uh, Struess and Niang and some of the others like to shoot threes. And I'm just old school on this, David. I I just see a lot of bad three-pointers taken by the Cavs, many other teams too, just rushing down the floor and just firing away. The old three points are better than two theory, and minus two points are better than none. That doesn't mean you you give up the three pointers, but I like good shooters taking good three pointers. Out of structure and flow instead of just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, if Garland comes down there or, or Mitchell's hot and takes one right off the fast break, fine. Those guys are good. I don't need to see some of these other people. I mean, I've seen a couple times where. Where Niang, who is a primarily a standstill shooter, has been trying to force it up off the dribble, probably because he's not making much of anything. He's trying to make it look good. Um, I also think Struess has forced a lot of shots. Now, maybe some of that is because he's trying to make up for the fact they have other people out in that. Uh, but he did um, say make some interesting points with. Uh, uh, Chris Fedor, and what about that, David? Yeah, so what let's get into say? that. Uh, Chris Fedor, who uh, covers our colleague who covers the Cavaliers, uh, had a little s- session with uh, Struess after the game last night, and, and it was really revealing. And uh, Chris was writing about how Struess is bringing this Miami Heat accountability culture with him to Cleveland. And what are we, a few games into the season, he told Chris, yeah. we got our A blank blank beat tonight. Um, you can make all the excuses you want. At the end of the day, they played harder than us. They out-toughed us. They beat the S out of us. They came in and did the same thing that they did last year. Hopefully that lights a flare in our locker room, and hopefully we respond to tomorrow. We have to be better. I like playing basketball the right way. It makes things easier when you do things the right way. And then Chris asked him, did the Cavs play the right way on Tuesday night? And Strew said, we did not. We played their game. We did what they wanted us to do, played right into their hands, and that didn't work for us. It shouldn't ever matter who's out there for us. We have enough guys who know how to play basketball in here. We need to be better. So what was your take on all that? I think Pat Riley's smiling somewhere because that (laughs) sounds like he's the kind of stuff that he would say. Um, The playing their game, I think what he believes there is, see, the Knicks want to force you into these kind of quick three-pointers and taking shots that maybe are out of your zone a little bit. And so I, that's what I think. Because they say, well, they build a wall around the basket and try to take away the drives and 
Uh, well, that's true, but figure out uh, if you swing the ball a couple times around to the other side of the court, you can probably find someone. If you're just going to play always on the right side of the court or the left side of the court, you're very easy to defend, and that is that's what I see there. You know, they talk ball movement, but I haven't seen a lot of it. Uh, secondly, they're still – well, there's two things going on with Mobley. Number one is they, they're not maybe sure where to get him the ball. But secondly, I wish I could well, – I'll ask you this. What is Mobley's best shot? Oh, I mean, other than like a pick and roll? They're right there. All right. <laughs> that's the – no, that, there yeah. it is. You know, that's exactly – for example, all right, ask me what Mitchell's best What's shot Mitchell's is. What's Mitchell's best Good, shot? Mitchell going to the basket off of a uh, – where he oftentimes uh, uh, maybe starts going to his left and goes to his right or goes to his right through his left, drives to the rim, maybe takes a bump, bump and makes a layup. He is very strong in the core muscles of the body on the drive, uh, taking a hit and making layups from different angles, different sides, and it's usually a change of direct, direction dribble. That's his best shot. And so you you know that. And if you're guarding, even though he's not bad from the outside, he also is very good at taking one, two, three dribbles. The shot that analytics hates, 15 to 12 footers, he makes those. Okay, Darius Garland, best shot? Um, There's two. Three-pointers, like from off of a screen? There or anywhere straight on. He could shoot it way out 28 feet. The other is the floater. Right. Floater in the lane. Very good floaters. Yep. Because yep. he could either float it or turn that into a lob. And then, then we go back to what about um, Mobley? The uh, Mobley. And he, he he's sort of pretty good on the elbow, but what he was doing, they, when he got there, they just crowded the, uh, uh, the lane on him. Because sometimes he, whatever side he goes, he likes to kind of dribble back towards the middle. And then he sort of gets blocked, and he's kind of falling away. So they're taking that away. I wish he had uh, just a, a signature shot, and maybe that's something he's going to develop. But until he does, uh, he's not going to average 20 points a game that the people want. Do you think anything – I don't want to get too deep into this, but do, do you think any of it has to do with – he's been yo-yoed a little bit in this lineup. I mean, last night he's – I think he was guarding uh, Robinson at one point. Like, they're, they're moving him into the five, out of the five. He's kind of getting yanked in and out. I guess that's just basketball, though, right? you got to figure it out. Yes, and that's defensively. Offensively, you can create your – if you're a coaching staff, if you figure out where he's best and you set that up for him to get the ball there. I think even they're, they're struggling with that. I mean, look, Mobley brings so much – into the game, his, his unselfishness. And um, they've been wanting him to, you know, take the ball off the rim and go down the floor and score more. I think he can do that. Uh, he just needs to get more comfortable with it. So, uh, but that's a big thing when we're talking about um, when you're playing without some of your scoring, then you needed, now Mobley had, then he had 30 the other night. So he did have that. It's in him, but, the, now, the Knicks make it hard. The Knicks, and I'm sure that's a uh, really angered Struce, is because the Knicks in Miami, they both just make your life miserable playing them. And and he just felt the cast kind of back down. Then at the end, you got Amani Bates, who's actually played much better than I thought for being 19 years old in this. And you've got, um, I forgot, the Craig Porter Jr., 
who's got you know some ability and maybe that but these these kids aren't ready for this yeah and by the way dean wade i don't know man um he he they're leaving him open and he's not making those shots looks to me like he's rushing them or something um i mean he's obviously trying but he's not rebounding either uh he's he doesn't have to be great, but he's just been disappointing. You know, when they made that trade with Love last year, the idea was to put Dean Love, Dean Wade into the Love role and see if he could do, you know, bring kind of some three-point shooting and that off the bench. And he's getting a lot of minutes, and I don't think he's doing much with them. All right, Terry, what, it will be interesting to see how the Cavs respond tonight in the rematch at Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. 7.30 tip-off. I do want just I know there was, some of this was in garbage time, but everybody was worried about the rebounding last year against the Knicks. It was 48-46 to 46 last night in favor of the Knicks. Some of it was in garbage time. Uh, and the blocks, which I thought was interesting, the Cavs had six blocks compared to one for the Knicks. But you know what? You were talking about three-pointers. When you, when you shoot 26% on three-pointers in the NBA um, – Regardless of how many you're shooting, it's going to be hard to win. So they fix yeah. that; it'll be a whole different outlook. Yeah, I, and and it is difficult. You could tell that Mitchell; they were they were you know boxing him in, um, and when they don't have really somebody else next to him doing much, it's it's a tough way to go. I, I was feeling it for Mitchell because I could see they were really saying we just shut him down and that's it. So we'll see, uh, and then. Look, those who don't like Jared Allen, this is what you got. All right, Terry. The- you miss a big part of what you do. And I'm tired of saying, hearing this stuff in the NBA, oh, we want everybody between 6'3 and 6'8, you know, where everybody can play any position on the court. And, of course, everybody must shoot a three-pointer. Or in Charles Barkley uh, lingo, any fool could shoot any foolish <laughs> three-pointer from anywhere. <laughs> That's the NBA today. Uh, and them coaches, as he said, they're watching these fools just jacking up these foolish shots. Okay. <laughs> All right, so the Cavs, uh, after tonight's game in New York, they are at Indiana on Friday. And then there's a nice one on Sunday uh, at home here in Cleveland at 6 o'clock against the Warriors who are coming to town. So, mm-hmm. All right, Terry, a little baseball talk here. The Guardians are still yes. looking for a new manager. I, I just I, We saw this week that Craig Council, manager of the Brewers, very successful manager of the Brewers, is in town interviewing. Uh, what would you think if they got him? Oh, I would be really pleased because, he, you know, he's – I had all the stuff in the paper in the Sunday column about his success with the Brewers and that. But it, it, it is very impressive, you know, in the media market. Yeah, the Brewers spend more than Cleveland, but uh, it's not like he was winning big in New York or anything. I I wonder what's going on with him because they've tried to sign him to an extension in Milwaukee at the start of last year, and he didn't sign it. Uh, He's one of the higher paid managers. I was surprised, by the way. Let me try to finish the sentence, and then we'll go from there. Number one, um, a New York Post reported that Terry Francona's salary last year was $4.5 million, highest paid manager in baseball. I wasn't surprised at the number for Francona. I just figured other managers making seven or eight mm. million. I know once upon a time Joe Torre was making like seven, but I did check with uh, somebody who would really know. Let me just leave it at that. That the four point five figure was right. I think there were some bonuses on it would take it up to five, and he is the highest paid guy. So they could easily take that number 
and give it to council who was making 3.5. So they could jack that up. Um, so I don't think it's a money thing with council. I really don't. I'm sure he'll want it. But because um, if he just wants cash, he could go to the Mets. The former Brewers GM uh, Stearns, he's there with the Mets. I mean, I remember my father once said, if you do something purely for money, usually that's all you get. Well, I, it's interesting, Terry. The, the uh, Paul Hoynes and Joe Noga, who would do our Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast, did an analysis this week of like comparing the Guardians to the other jobs and like what are the pros and cons of each. But if, Craig Council, I mean, P- Cleveland fans remember him from the '97 World Series. He was like yeah. just a really he was a ball player, right? Like he didn't yeah. he wasn't like a spotlight guy. He didn't really love no. to be out front, and he, he just he played baseball the right way and and was a winner. And I just wondering if he had to choose between, I know he's got the personal connection with the Mets now, but if he have to choose between going to New York and, and dealing with the media there and, and this, it's just a circus, it's never, you know, they couldn't even get their Jersey patch right last year no. and that, or coming to Cleveland. And we've talked about this, Terry. One thing that, that Terry Francona loved about being here was it was about the baseball and you're surrounded by yeah. baseball people. And I'm just wondering, like Craig council wouldn't be here if he loved that Mets job and wanted to jump into that kind of circus of, of everything out there, he might've taken that job already. And the fact that he's here, I think is good news for the guardians. Cause I think he's going to give it serious. It just seems like he's that kind of guy. Maybe. I don't know. Well, his contract isn't up and well, it was up yesterday, October 31st. So it's up today. November one is the first time he could officially take a job. So that's number one. Number two, um, he does have two girls. He lives in Wisconsin. He's from Wisconsin. He's got two kids in school, high school there, I heard. And I think one at Minnesota and one somewhere else in the Big Ten. So he's got a lot of Midwest connections. I mean, it seems like if he doesn't want to stay in Milwaukee, Cleveland would make sense for him. I don't know where else he'll, he'll me end up entering somewhere else. Why he hasn't re-up with Milwaukee, I'm not sure. Because it, it just seems to be a natural fit. But you got to go for, you know, you're Cleveland. Now, I was told, and I wrote it by a, a person real close to the situation, that the Guardians knows it's a long shot. But why not try for it? Because those rest of these guys, Andy Green and I forgot all the other candidates, you know, they, they're they're either Green and managed San Diego rather unsuccessfully once upon a time, and the other guys have not been managers anywhere they've interviewed. Um, you know, you, you could go back to that pool anytime you want. Yeah, and and you could be using the Mets and the Guardians as leverage to get more money out of the Brewers. Like we don't really know. So <laughs> that could be really what's going yeah, on here. Yeah, and he was big in the union when he was a player. So this may be, and I know a lot of the managers, and I think it's fair to say, think that um, work underpaid compared to just you know things in general my goodness they gave mike zanino six million dollars and terry frank was making four and a half and that's the highest paid manager in baseball <laughs> i mean really yeah. and and uh terry uh, francona had a better throwing shoulder funny enough <laughs> yeah he, he did pretty much yeah even though he's got to get it prepared but um so that that's the thing there and then i think he Sometimes when you're a free agent like that, even if you think you're going back to Milwaukee, you go to these other places and you pick their brain. How do you do business? Who do you like? Who do I like? And so then you uh, 
kind of come back with more information, even if you stay in your same place. Now, he should know from Stearns what Stearns likes. He worked for him once before, although he may say, all right, now that we're, we would be together in New York, what would we do? Um, now, in Cleveland, they always want to know, how do you get these pitchers? They, they'll all want to find that out, and they could ask him, how do you get some hitters? <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, things are going to have to wrap up pretty quickly because uh, the baseball offseason is nearly upon us. The Guardians are letting a lot of the, a lot of their, uh, I know, uh, Mike Sarbaugh, their third base coach is leaving. A lot of their sports staff, uh, the other coaches are leaving. So they got to start yeah. moving on some hires here. This probably is going to happen within the next week or week and a half, you'd think. But who knows? Who knows? They, they want to make sure they get it right I instead get of getting the, it done fast. So I, I still get the emails on Sandy Alomar, and I've talked about this before, but let's just do a minute on that. Sandy doesn't want the job. He had the job in 2020 um, when Tito was out with uh, during that COVID time and everything. And he did he did not like all the stuff that comes with being the manager. Stuff such as dealing with the front office, dealing with analytics, dealing with the media, dealing with players and their personal problems. You know, you're you're a manager. Uh, the the title is there. It's not just a pure coach. Now. He loves working with young catchers. And look what he did with Bo Naylor this year by the end of the year. And he loves – people think of the first base coach. He just walks over there and just says, oh, the one out, two outs, make sure you slide. No, he's there documenting and die, you know, with uh, uh, there with a stopwatch. And then when he goes back to the dugout, uh, p- pitchers move to first base, how to improve base stealing. He is a fanatic in those areas about base running and about – catching how to call games how to block balls all that and i he there's part of him that's a real purist and he just loves that and chris antonetti made it clear that basically he's grandfathered in you know whoever gets this job you get sandy because you'll be in fact if you don't want sandy we probably shouldn't hire you yeah, I mean, if you drew a triangle between home plate, first base, and second base, that's like Sandy Alomar's yeah. domain. Like everything that happens in yes. the triangle, a lot of it happened. Well, a lot of it happens because of him in the coaching. You're, you're so right, Terry. Um, uh, real quick, hey, t- since we podcasted last, um, Frank Howard passed away. I think mm-hmm. I think it was Thursday last week. Uh, and you have a just a wonderful column going tomorrow up on Cleveland.com about Frank Howard, and you called someone to get some background on Frank Howard and some good stories. Why don't you tell a little bit about that? Well, Howard was basically, I would say like Howard, kind of Rocky Calvito are lost in baseball history. They hit a ton of home runs in the, in the sixties and Rocky even went back to the late fifties. When it doesn't look like it's that many home runs now, because now it's 40 or fifties a lot. Back then, he hit over 30. That's a lot, and you have to look at it that way. So I remember when Frank Howard, I was at Cleveland Stadium, and he hit this missile into the upper deck in left field, I mean, halfway up or more. And I'm thinking, am I just imagining this or what? So I called up Rocky Calavito because as I like, they, Rocky was with Cleveland in three of the years that Frank was in the American League because before that, Frank started with the Dodgers. I said, do you remember this home run that Frank Howard hit? He goes, yeah, halfway up the left <laughs> field, if not more. I go, I hit a couple myself up there, but nothing like that one. And then he's on about nobody hit the ball as far as Frank Howard. And uh, I said, would you ever meet him? He goes, yeah, the first time 
I don't know why we were in Mexico City with these exhibition games or something. And he comes up to me and he introduces himself. He goes like, nobody would know who Frank Howard is because he's six seven two. He was listed at six seven two fifty. He's like two seventy five. And remember, this is a time when guys are not as big as they are now. And and he and he's wearing glasses. And he, hey, uh, I'm Frank Howard. Hi, I'd love to meet you, Mr. Calavito. He goes, Mr. Calavito, I'm Rocky. He said he, half the time he still called him Mr. Calavito. Uh, Rocky was a few years older and. Uh, you know, was kind of the slugger. And I think Frank admired Rocky. They're both right-handed power hitters. It's a fun story to read. And um, Rocky is 90 years old now. And he's a treasure to have around. He is our my, my go-to baseball encyclopedia and kind of Cleveland stuff. But I, you know, because sometimes you wonder, is my memory right? Or is this just how I want to remember it? But that was the home run. Then I was looking. I remember this guy just crushing. Cleveland. Of course, it felt like that back then, no matter who. But I looked it up, and you know his OPS against against the the, the tribe was like eleven hundred. I mean, he just owned them, and he had hit more home runs in Cleveland. Uh, the excuse me, the only park visiting ballpark that he hit more home runs in Cleveland was Baltimore. I think it was thirty five in Baltimore, thirty four in Cleveland. So it's a lot of fun if you know for players of his or people who follow players of a certain age. If not, it's a good way to look at uh, baseball history. And I think you'll be shocked to see how Rocky and Frank Howard's stats are almost identical for their long career. Something, isn't it? One of my favorite stories, yeah. Terry, was you were writing about how when Ted Williams managed Frank Howard in Washington, yeah. he was trying to get him to hit for more contact. But I, I guess when Frank Howard used to hit the ball so far at the old RFK Stadium that they would paint the seats white where the to show where the the home run landed. And Ted Williams's line was, "Yeah, on all the green seats for all the or for all the times that he struck oh, out." Struck, struck out, <laughs> and it was and it was a story that Frank Howard told on himself. Yeah. And and actually, I looked it up. The couple years people forget that Ted Williams managed, which is only a few years in Washington. The couple years he had Frank Howard, the first two. The home runs went up, the walks went up, the strikeouts went down. So um, that's a that's another thing. These are it's a lot of fun. The nostalgia is good, uh, so check it out. All right, and that'll be up on the website tomorrow morning, and I think it'll be in the Plain Dealer tomorrow. Well, maybe Friday. We'll see when they, when they can. Friday. Friday. Okay. Yeah, I think Friday. Home delivery. Great, yeah. Great. Uh, okay, Terry. Let's uh, move on here. I do want to mention real quick before I forget, because I, I do quite often. If you want to sign up for Terry's newsletter. Go to cleveland.com slash newsletters. You just click a box. You'll get everything that Terry writes in a given week in your mailbox every Monday. It is free, and it literally takes a minute. So cleveland.com slash newsletters. And then uh, about a month or so ago for our 100th episode, you invited fans to write us at sports at cleveland.com and tell us like where they're from, um, how they're still a Cleveland sports fan, and why they became a Cleveland sports fan. So we have a couple more of those that I thought we would get to here. You ready? All right. This first one is from Mark Stringer. And Mark says, grew up in Akron as a Cleveland sports fan reading Terry in the Beacon Journal in the 1980s. When post-college life, I graduated from Ashland in 1989, took me out of Northeast Ohio. I kept my fandom, especially of the Indians slash Guardians. 
I used to be a diehard Browns fan until the move to Baltimore. Now I only casually pay attention from afar, and I rarely watch games. But if they ever get good again, like those 80s teams, I'll get sucked back in for sure. I'm a peripheral fan of the Cavs, even during the LeBron years, though I'm excited about the current team. Still enjoy the writing and perspectives of Terry, thanks to the internet and the podcast, of which I'm a weekly listener. I've lived in Des Moines since 2001, with time in Chicago and Omaha before that. I'll never stop caring about Cleveland sports. Thanks for doing the podcast. Love it. And thanks for that, Mark. Um, And then our last one for this week is from Tom White, and he lives in Farmington, New York. And he says... Hey, Terry, I've been a Browns fan for 60 years. Oh, my. my first real encounter was in 1963 when I was 13. I lived in a sm- on a small farm in a small farming community outside Syracuse. That year, there was a father and son banquet at our church. My dad and I went, and the Jim Brown was the guest speaker. Wow. My recollections from that night are that Jim Brown was a mountain of a man, and his speech was incredibly motivational. And after that, his speech i got to say hello and shake his hand that was it i was hooked as a browns fan over the years some of my most memorable moments are centered around the browns watching the cardiac kids red right 88 beating the jets in double overtime the heartbreaking losses in the afc championships when the team was leaving for baltimore i was watching their last game in cleveland on tv with my family and my nine-year-old daughter asked me why i was crying I must admit, since the return in 99, it's been tough, but the Browns continue to unite my family, my wife, daughter, and son, brother-in-law, sister, and their son, my dad and mom. All of us have made trips to Cleveland to watch the Browns. What fantastic memories. We were there the night they beat the Giants on Monday Night Football. What a rush. My wife, son, and I were at the cold, snowy game when they beat Buffalo. Phil Dawson's field goal that day was one of the best kicks I've ever seen. (laughs) Now to the present, we are in Cleveland for the Bengals game this year. What a rush. I've never heard the stadium that loud. Uh, What a heartbreak when Nick Chubb was hurt. I pray for his complete recovery. And then Tom ends up by saying, "Why why do I like suffering being a Cleveland sports fan? It brings my family together. I am and I always have been proud to be a Browns fan. That will continue until the day I go to meet my maker. Go Browns. And that's from Tom White again in Farmington, New York. So, And that's a common, it's an uncommon, common story. Uncommon that it comes from different areas. Common that it was, I, I had a guy in the airport recognize me, came up. And I want to say he lived in, he was flying to Seattle too, but he like lived in, Spokane or Portland, I forgot which. And I mean, I think he moved from Cleveland. He was like 12. <laughs> and, and you know, let's put it this way. He's a lot closer to 60 than he is to 40. <laughs> and, you know, and he's still, I read you on the internet and this and that. I mean, And so I am grateful for whether it's podcast or the internet because of how it uh, allows, um, uh, Anybody, if you want it, you can get it. Yeah, it's a great time. And, and no matter where you are. This letter, Terry, a lot of people might who are younger might not remember this, but back in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, teams were desperate for fans to come and buy tickets. And so there'd yeah. be like this chicken dinner circuit where they'd send yeah. players and coaches out into the community to have, you know, to, to these father-son banquets like he was talking about. And that's that's kind of one of the cool lost things of sports that I feel like we don't have anymore, that it used to be so intimate. You could meet Jim Brown at, at your church and stuff. And that's that's one of the things that I think sports has gotten a lot more corporate the last 25 years or so, and that's, that's a little bit lost. But The other thing about that, David, because I wrote about some of that, okay, cheap, cheap plug time at Vintage Browns, um, 
where you could go and if you had 50 or 100 bucks in a budget, say in the 60s or 70s, 50s for sure, you can get a guy to come to your church or your car dealer or something. These guys wanted that hundred bucks. They wanted even at fifty. Oh bucks. yeah, right. and I mean because it you know it wasn't there. Now it's like, um, you know, I don't know what it would cost to get a player to go somewhere. So uh, probably you'd want your house, and that's <laughs> that's kind of the deal there. But it, that's the other thing that changed. So yeah, but it's pretty neat. Jim Jim Brown. That's wow. In nineteen nineteen sixty three too. Yeah, so. right in the in the heyday. They're right before yeah. the championship year. So thanks for those letters. Hey, if you have a thought, comment, question for the podcast, hit us at sports at cleveland dot com, and we will try and get it on next week. So tell us what your thoughts are, and we will talk to you next week on Terry's Talking.